All right, I think we're ready to start. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I was left in the pew. It's not right here. Okay. This was left in the pew somewhere up there. Is this your phone? All right, well, I'll just hold it, I guess, or give it to somebody anyway. All right, if you know somebody missing a phone, I've got it, all right? 1 Corinthians 5 is where we were last week, and it's about the situation of church discipline. Now, we said a lot of... I thought there was a lot of good discussion and helpful things mentioned last week. Today we'll try to plow through it and get into chapter 6. Paul not only tells us that the, there was a problem in 1 Corinthians 5, but he also talks about the solution and how those problems should be addressed. So the first thing is the report and the reproach. That is, hey, it's been commonly reported that there's fornication among you and it's worse than the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife and he tells them, about how bad that is. And then in verses 3 through 5, he gives his judgment and his reason. He says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if I was present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And we Again, we talked about some of that and what that involves and the delivering of this person over to Satan so that his spirit can be restored. But remember, church discipline is ultimately about rescuing this person and not ruining them. And that's what Paul says he is driving at. All right. And so he wants to do it out. He wants them to do it out of love and to make sure that they don't defile the church. And that's where we are now in verses six through eight. So let's read this part of it together. Your boasting is not good. And do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are leavened, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so in verse six, this your glorying is not good. This boasting about this. Paul saying this isn't a good thing. Right. The Bible comes down hard on boasting, but especially in this regard, to celebrate sin and to make it as if this was an occasion on which to be joyous. And so Paul now will use the example of leaven to as an example about the power of sin in a local congregation. So what is leaven and what is Paul trying to say about it in verse six? What is what is leaven and what role would it, would it have played in this culture and in this society? What does leaven do? It makes something grow. That's right. What else? Leaven is what? Mm-hmm. And it brings about basically an influence into whatever it's inserted. So what Paul is driving at here, you might think about this. You're reading this text and you think, well, this brother, whoever he was, that was, you know, in this sinful relationship with his stepmother. Hey, his sin, his business. But Paul is saying, not, no, that's not true at all. It's going to influence everybody. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is going to influence everybody. And so the church needs to discipline this individual, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, for the saving of his soul, but also for the entire congregation. And that brings home a point for every one of us. Right. We all have struggles. We all have temptations. We all have weaknesses. But when we persist in sin, our sin is never just our business. It's going to affect the unity that God wants us to have. Go to Philippians one and notice an example of this, this idea of our needing to be together and how if any one of us chooses to live in a way that's ungodly, it's going to affect how we interact with one another. In Philippians one in verse twenty seven. Paul says, only let your conduct or your manner of life, only let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. 
that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast with one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see that Paul is linking their unity with their holy living together. Only let the old King James has only let your conversation, let your manner of life be what a Christian should be. Live like you should. And then you can strive together with one spirit. But what if one person in the group says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to live how I want. We won't be able to strive together in the gospel with that one spirit. And Paul is saying, hey, this guy's influence is going to corrupt the congregation. In first Timothy, chapter five and verse twenty two, Paul says those that sin rebuke before all. And then he adds something on on the end. But before I give you the end of the verse, why would Paul say that those that sin rebuke them in the presence of everyone? Why would he say that to embarrass them? That's exactly right. So each one will know what they've done. That's how the verse ends. Those that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. The point is, this person needs to be shown that their actions are wrong, but not just them. The entire congregation needs to know that this type of behavior is ungodly. Look at verse seven of first Corinthians five. Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. And so. This terminology, this whole example, really, from verse six to verse eight is rich with Old Testament analogy. After the 10 plagues, really, yeah, after the the 10 plagues, God's getting ready to deliver Egypt or deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage. And he starts to prepare them. So there's an aside when Moses just starts in verse 12 to tell them about the Passover meal that they're going to enjoy when they leave this presence. He says, eat it with the staff in your hand, your belts girded and make sure there's no what in the house. Yeast, no leaven allowed to be in the house. That's Exodus chapter 12 and verse 15 and Exodus 13 and verse 7. When they were getting ready for that's why we partake of the Lord's Supper with unleavened bread. There's no command in the New Testament that says the bread shall be unleavened. But we reason from this reality. Well, if Jesus partook of it with his disciples in Matthew 26, around the time during the Passover season, there wouldn't have been any leavened bread in the house because of Exodus 12:15 and Exodus 13 and verse 7. So we're going to partake of unleavened bread. Paul said, now, you know. Know about the Passover sacrifice. You know how that meal was taken. No yeast allowed in the house. No leaven allowed in the house. Well, the church is the house of God. First Timothy three fifteen. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. And so I don't know what happened there. Somebody went. Oh well. Anyway, we'll just go on with it. Uh, I need to say something again. Okay. Anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> but anyway, the point is. Christ, our Passover lamb, verse seven, has been sacrificed for us. And so now we enjoy a new meal. Now we enjoy what he calls in verse eight, this festival celebration. But you can only do that if you're doing things right and in a pure way. Don't let it's coming back. All right. So don't let it disrupt the fellowship that we have with one another. The church that does not practice church discipline consistently. And that's the key. Consistently. The church that does not practice church discipline consistently and as needed is creating bigger problems for herself in the future. Right. So it may seem easy and comfortable and we don't want to rile anybody up. And so we're just going to pass over this. But according to Paul, you're going to create more problems in the future. The sin we ignore will eventually run rampant in the congregation. Imagine being in the congregation and this guy gets away with it. What are you thinking when it's you? Well, you didn't say anything to that last guy. So why are you going to say something to me? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It will eventually maybe unknowingly at first encourage people that they can live a double life. Right. And so Paul is saying, I don't want that to happen to the congregation here. I want you to get things under control. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's right. Paul's going to get more into that discussion about our behavior before the world and non-Christians in chapter six. But since it's been introduced, let's have this discussion briefly. What is one of the most often stated rebuttals against Christianity? Somebody doesn't want to become a Christian. They don't want to worship with assemble with the saints. They, they're not interested in God. You say, hey, you should come with me. They say, well, I believe in God. I'm religious in all of this. But there are too many what in the church? Too many what? Everybody in unison. That's the loudest we've ever been in here. Congratulations. Right. So you've heard that before. Right. They're hypocrites. What does that mean? Why are they saying that? Yeah, sometimes it's an excuse from somebody who just doesn't want to get with the gospel program. But often what people mean by that is, well, look, I live better than most of those people down there, or at least they would think in their minds. The response to that is not, okay. we've got to be perfect and sinless. But the point is we do sin. There's no hypocritical thing about that. One lady said, when somebody says that, you should say to them, we always have room for one more. So come on down. Don't say that. Don't say that. But that's what she said. Right. The point is, though, we're not sinlessly perfect, but we do want to acknowledge when we sin and when others sin and we're not going to just pass over it. And more about that as we round out chapter five. But, yeah, it'll contaminate the congregation, but also contaminate our influence. Look at First Corinthians 13. And think about this in connection with, hey, love has to rebuke sin and we've got to say something if we care about the person. And remember, we said this last week. Church discipline is not the withdrawal of fellowship. That's important. Withdrawing from an individual who is in sin is a part of church discipline. But when you're at that point, that's the last step. There are a hundred steps that we should be taking with ourselves and with others before we ever get to that point. And so 1 Corinthians 5 is in the Bible because these folks, they just shot all over that. There was no, this guy's just living in sin. But if somebody's in sin, that person can be corrected and brought to repentance in a private way before it ever gets to. So a congregation may say, man, we've never practiced church discipline here. You don't really know that per se. Right. There could have been congregate conversations had in private and other things to try to bring people to repentance so that it doesn't come to the point where we've got to say we've got to pull away from Hiram because he's living in a way that he shouldn't and he won't repent. We tried everything. So just keep that in mind. Church discipline is not. That's one of the big mistakes people make on this conversation. We summarize church discipline and we boil it down to merely the practice of withdrawing. But that's not discipline in and of itself. That's a part of it. That's one facet of it. But it's not all. And if we do it right, hopefully it won't always get to that or hope preferably never. But first Corinthians 13, six, Paul says this about love. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing or iniquity, but it rejoices in the what? Truth. You might write that as a cross reference to first Corinthians five and verse six when he says your boasting is not good. Why is their boasting not good? Because love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Love never celebrates sin. And so if somebody says, well, I'm doing this because I'm loving and I'm kind and I wouldn't want to offend or hurt them or ruin this friendship, you can call that whatever you want. But it's not love because love never celebrates wickedness or iniquity. But love rejoices in the truth. And so this is important. How does each of us cleanse out the old leaven? Because that's what Paul says we need to do in verse um, verse seven. Cleanse out the old leaven that it may be a new lump. How do we do that in our own lives? Cleanse out the old leaven. Leaven in this text stands for what? Sin. Yeah, the leaven is sin. So Paul says cleanse out the old leaven. How do we do that in our lives personally? Repent. And how often should that be done? Nonstop as often as we sin. Yeah, we need to be inspecting ourselves. In Colossians three and verse five, Paul says it this way, mortify or put to death the deeds that are in you. Now, he's writing to people that are already Christians and he's saying, hey, put to death what's earthly in you. And then he starts to list some things down through verse 10 to say, get it out of your life. Um, 
It's important that we do this on a daily basis. John Owen said about Christians in their lives, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That is put purge out the old leaven, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. There is that. Those are the only options we have. Either we're going to mortify the flesh every day or a little sin over and over again in our lives is going to disrupt us. Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us in verse seven. And so it's disrespectful to see that take place with Jesus, to know the love of Christ in that way and then say, well, this is his church, but we're okay with sin and we really don't care. And Paul's saying you can't be that way. There's an occasion in Numbers 25 that mirrors this one. But in Numbers 25, there's a man that stands up and he does something about it. His name is Phineas. He's the grandson of Aaron. You remember what happens that Baal, I mean, the prophet um, Balaam tries to get Israel to sin and they engage in fornication. Numbers 25 and people are just doing whatever they want. And one Israelite man takes this woman and he's just parading her through the camp. This pagan woman who has no right to be sexually involved with. And Phineas sees it and it says the zeal of the Lord ate him up and. He just pierced them both through with the with a spear, sort of Israelite shish kebab, if you will, right there, right there on the spot. And God pronounced the blessing on him. And he said, you know what? I've taken away the reproach of Israel because of the zeal of Phineas. Phineas got the sin out of the camp. Now, that's not how we're to take care of matters in the New Testament. But the point from Numbers 25 still stands, doesn't it? When you see this just being paraded and flagrantly participated in, the Christian has to stand up and say, no, we can't do that. Now, notice verses nine through 13. Did somebody have a hand up? Did I miss anybody? Okay, 9 through 13. This is an important part of what Paul's saying. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. When Paul wrote that, we don't know. Evidently, there was a letter before 1 Corinthians, but it wasn't preserved. Many of the things in that letter obviously were reiterated in 1 Corinthians, but we have all the books that God wants us to have. But Paul does say, hey, I wrote to you before about this. So they had already heard this before. Verse 10 Not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or if he is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. You might draw an arrow or a line back to verse seven when he says purge out, cleanse out the old leaven. And now he summarizes this section by saying purge the evil from among you. So Paul had previously written to them about this. And now he gets back to some of these ideas with some clarification, which the church in every age, especially now, needs to hear this last part about putting what Paul says into practice. So this put this evil person away from you does not apply to who? The world. You see that it's tempting. We get this backwards sometimes in the church. I'm speaking globally. We won't discipline our own and then we discipline the world. Paul is saying, listen, people in the world, you know how they're going to act. How will they act in the world? Worldly, right? We shouldn't be surprised about that. We don't have to applaud it. We don't have to be excited about it. But the devil's children are rarely on their best behavior. That's just how it works, right? People in the world are going to be like that. You can't discipline them. Why couldn't you discipline a person in the world spiritually? No point of reference. There's nothing to withdraw. What are you going to say to a worldly person? Well, I'm just not going to deal with you anymore. In what way? What do you mean you're not going to deal with me? Right. And so, yeah, we still are in the world. Go to John 17. Dwight, go ahead. John 17. That's a good way to put it. That's right. We do need to be in conversation with people that are in the world and not living as they should. But the conversation is more along the lines of, hey, 
you're in sin. God wants to save you. God wants you to turn to him. But Paul is saying that's just what they do. Look at John 17, 15. This is actually a prayer from Jesus. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but do what? Keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. And so Jesus is saying, I'm praying for my disciples, but they're going to have to get their work done in the world. And so when Paul says, hey, I wrote to you before to stay away from ungodly and sexually immoral people. Don't keep company with them. I was not talking about the citizens in and around Bowling Green in particular. If anybody's a brother, then if this person says I'm a Christian, if they've obeyed the gospel and they choose to live this way, then what Paul wrote about not keeping company with fornicators, then it applies to them. And so if an individual is a brother and he behaves this way, we are not to have fellowship with this person. Why is it important that we grasp this principle on both sides for the worldly and for the Christian? Why does this matter? And why is it this way, by the way? Why is it that? Well, The person that's a Christian is disciplined. And we talked about why the person that's not a Christian wouldn't be. But why do we need to make sure we really get a handle on this? That's right. We may be guilty. We may be tempted to say, you know what? They've got the spiritual cooties and we're going to stay away from them. And so we're not going to do anything with them. Well, we're going to have a hard time relating to them and winning them over. Who did Jesus spend a lot of his time with? Would you say worldly people or people that were interested in spiritual things? What would you say? Worldly? Who else? What else? That's it. Everybody for worldly. Poor. Yeah, I would argue potentially based on what we read in the Gospels, you could say he was probably about 50 50 because he had an intimate relationship with the disciples, the 12. He was always among them. But Jesus spent a lot of time around people that were worldly and sinners, so much so that in Luke 15 verses one and two, they say this man receives sinners and eats with them. So if Jesus ate with sinners, if he spent time around them so much so that people could call him the friend of sinners, we need to build some time into our schedules. We work around them to be around them, to live around people that aren't doing the right thing. So hopefully we can influence them, as Kevin mentioned, and bring them to Christ. Paul's saying, look, what I wrote to you in First Corinthians five and before about not keeping company with the ungodly is not for people in the world. Otherwise, you'd have to go where? Outside of the world. And when you go to Mars Then it'll be sent on Mars, too, because you'll be there. Right. And so you can't get away from it. He's saying, I'm talking about in the church. You can't discipline the world. That's just how it is there. But in the church, once people name the name of Christ, now there's a standard to be held. What? Yeah. Yeah. So evangelism involves not only our seeking the lost, but those individuals must also be seeking. But one of the differences between us and Jesus to a certain degree is this. We don't know the hearts of men and who's seeking. And so because of that, we're to cast the broadest net that we can. When we sow seed, we're to try to sow it as broadly as we can. And Paul says, I want you to make sure that you discipline those within. Because notice, look at the end of this in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Who's going to deal with those on the outside in verse 13? God's going to deal with them. John 3:16 is a famous verse for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus says, I haven't come to condemn the world in the next verse. Those who don't believe on the son are condemned already. You can't make a lost person more lost by continuing to highlight their sin. It's not. Well, you're just you're just the drunkard. You're they're already condemned already because they haven't believed on the name. God's going to deal with them. Our conversations with the lost are, yes, to heighten their awareness of sin, but also the love of God for them and the escape that's been provided. 
But for those inside the church, now we can talk about behavioral modification with people that are Christians because we walk according to the new and the living way. Sometimes we we might be guilty of having more outrage about stuff that's going on in the news and in our society and in our country than we should be about what's going on in the church. I'm not happy about those things like you're not, but I'm just telling you, so long as Jesus delays his coming, that's how it's going to be. And the New Testament is doing all that it can to awaken us to that reality so that we don't despair, but also so that we don't waste our resources in the wrong direction, flinging our hands and saying, I just can't believe things are this way. Well, I can. Because without Jesus, that's exactly how it's going to be always. People may be able to monitor their behavior and rake it in for a period of time, but eventually the world's going to behave like the world. And so Paul is saying, look, look inside, look internally and make sure your lives are molded by the gospel because you guys know better. The world doesn't. All right. Some concluding observations about church discipline. Then we'll go into chapter six. A few things to remember. And I'm just going to shoot these off quickly and then go into chapter six. The goal is to rescue and not to ruin. Keep that in mind. Number two, the church doesn't belong to us. It belongs to to Jesus. And so we should try to keep the church in the condition he would have us to always mourn over sin. Never celebrate it. Now, that works in two ways. Don't celebrate sin as far as, hey, we're just not going to do anything. But also we shouldn't be proud of the fact that, well, we're a church that disciplines. Nobody gets out of here without being rebuked if they know we should be mourning over the fact that we even have to go through with the process. If it's called call for calls for it. saving the spirit is the priority. That's what Paul says. We want to save the spirit in the day of the Lord Jesus. And one more important matter. Sometimes this happens. Church withdrawal, if it comes to that, is a congregational endeavor. And it's not merely the elders. Sometimes a person says, well, they withdrew from so and so. No, if I'm in Christ and this person persists in sin and all measures have been exhausted and this person says, no, I'm just going to turn my back and walk in darkness. Church discipline. It's a congregational endeavor. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. I don't know if they had elders or not. He doesn't mention that. But the reality is everybody that's on the Lord's side says, I'm going to pull away from it. It wouldn't be. Well, that's what the elders say. But that's my buddy. I, I know he's living how he. Well, no, that's my friend. I'm not withdrawing. That's what they said. The church there, they. It's a congregational endeavor. And if I'm a friend, then I'm in a closer proximity relationally to bring them to the truth. But everybody that's on board with God is going to be on board with that decision. All right. Before we move on to chapter six, any questions or comments on chapter five? Yeah, that's right. And that brings up a whole can of worms, really, because it's, it's, it's kind of hard to do that. That's biblical. He doesn't or she doesn't need to be warmly received. But, of course, communication between congregations is really the problem as we regards that. But if a person moves, of course, the elders do their due diligence. I don't know if the Bible wants them to be private investigators. You know, the best they can do is operate on the information that they've been given about this individual. Maybe the congregation that they're coming from might alert the elders to something like that. But if it's known, then obviously that would be. Yeah, you wouldn't say, well, you've left there and you can just jump over here. It would be church wide because God's family is as expansive as his world. And so that's right. Anybody else? That's right. Yeah. Church discipline is a redemptive process, not a punishment. And so with that thought in mind, what does it say about us if we don't do it? We're really not as interested in soul saving as we claim to be. One more thing on this and then we'll go to chapter six. Go to James five and just remember this. James five. If we want to be an evangelistic church, just think about this one reality. The only time in the New Testament that I can find and you may be prove me wrong about this and you can find the verse and then I'll amend what I'm about to say in the future. 
But the only text in the New Testament that actually uses the phrase to save a soul is not about a person who's never obeyed the gospel. In James 5, 19 and 20, it's about somebody who's already a Christian. James says, if any of you do err from the truth or wander away from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which shall save a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. He which converts a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And all of our talk about seeking and saving the lost, this has to be it. I think in every church everywhere, if congregations could just merely get the people who have wandered away from the truth, we double in size probably. Right. This is soul saving business, according to James. If you go and get that individual, that's what James calls it. Saving a soul from death. We often think of soul winning as do I have the capability to sit down and have a Bible study with somebody who's never obeyed the gospel? I believe that's soul winning, too. But I just know that the New Testament calls this soul winning, seeking and saving the once saved and now lost. That's evangelism, too. And biblical evangelism involves an emphasis on both. Not just how many new individuals we can bring in, but how many formerly saved individuals can we go and retrieve? James says, if you do that, you literally save a soul. And I think that's important. All right. First Corinthians chapter six. This is about Christians in the courtroom. I just briefly say some people believe that what Paul discusses in chapter six is a continuation of chapter five. So in summary, what Paul is going to say in chapter six is this. Some of the Corinthians were taking other Christians to court and working out their differences before the pagans. As already has been mentioned, Paul is saying, look, you're embarrassing God. Don't do that. Some people believe that what they were going to court about is the situation in chapter five, that maybe this man took his son to court. You know, that's possible, but I believe it's foreign to the context. Paul doesn't mention that situation in specific. In fact, in chapter five, he said they weren't doing anything about it. So I don't believe they're going to court over that. But regardless of the circumstances, Paul says some things in chapter six about how we're to handle our issues and what not to do. Look at verses one through eight of chapter six. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at one with another at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brother. So the first thing Paul calls for them to do is to get themselves in order with reference to how they're handling their dispute. Roman society was extremely involved in court litigation and that sort of thing. Cases began to be heard at dawn and sometimes could be argued as late as sunset. Judges were always chosen from among the well-to-do and the wealthy in society and most legal disputes resolved around money or property. And some lawsuits were simply designed to disturb one's enemies. So when you read, for example, throughout the book of Acts, and sometimes they'll bring a man before the authorities and some of the rulers in the book of Acts will say, look, we've got other things to do. See to your own troubles, your own cases, because the Jews had set up courtrooms in their own synagogues because they were ashamed to go before the Romans and let them sort out their issues. So in Acts 18, when they bring Paul before Galileo's judgment seat, he says to them, this doesn't have anything to do with Roman law. You handle your own business because the Jews were taking care of their own issues. Now, Paul writes in First Corinthians and he says, 
if you guys have a problem with one another, why would you take that before the unbelievers to let them sort it out when you could handle these issues yourselves? And so notice what Paul, how Paul reasons in verse two. Or do you not know that we will judge the world? This phrase that Paul keeps using over and over again. Do you not know? You see it in first Corinthians six and verse two. You see it in chapter five and verse six. And he'll mention it again in chapter six and verse nine. Do you not know? Don't you know? Why is Paul saying that? Why does Paul keep reminding them, hey, don't you know this already? Don't you know these things? What's the reason for continuing to introduce that phrase? Do you not know? Don't you know? He's told them before. Yep. And what else? They should have known. They should have done something about it. And here's another thing. Just because we've heard something before doesn't mean that it's what? Really sunk in. That doesn't mean anything. Just because you've heard a sermon on something before, just because you've read something before, doesn't mean you've really learned the lesson that you should have. And so Paul will often say, hey, don't you know this already? Don't you know that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Well, yes, Paul, I was there when I was baptized. But don't you know what that's supposed to do? So Paul is saying, hey, you guys know better than this, but you're not behaving like you do. And so he brings up some of the things that will be true about us. Look at verse two. The saints will judge the world. What is that all about? Well, Daniel seven and verse twenty two talks about the saints having this exalted position. Christians will judge the world. And then he mentions in verse three, don't you know that we'll judge angels? And what is that in reference to? It's possible that what Paul means here is this. The fallen angels. Second Peter two and verse four, Jude verse six says some angels disobeyed and they were literally cast down. Our righteous lives will stand as judgment against them as God looks at us and he says, look at how faithful these folks were. You remember Noah, Hebrews 11 and verse seven by faith. Noah condemned the world. How did he do that? By doing what God told him to do. So our lives are probably what Paul's referencing here when he says we'll judge the world. Right. God's committed all judgment to the son. That's Jesus in John 5:22. We're not going to be on thrones literally pronouncing guilty or acquitted for other individuals, but our lives, we're going to judge the angels. We'll judge the world. God's going to look at us as look at these individuals who've obeyed the gospel, who believed, who've turned in the right way. And then Paul says, and you Corinthians, you're on Corinthian court TV. You're embarrassing the church, right? This isn't good. You shouldn't be doing this. God wants you to straighten up your attitude. Look at verse three. If you can judge all of these things, how much more should you be equipped to judge matters that pertain to this life? And so every family has family problems. It's not just mine. It's not just yours. Every family has family problems. And the family of God is no different. If you think it's just your family, just read the book of Genesis. Brothers killing brothers, stealing birthrights and inheritance. It's a mess. But what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 6 is this. Every family's problems is not everybody's business. So first Corinthians six is, hey, the church has problems, but don't air it out before the world, because, you know, there are already people waiting for a reason not to believe. And when they see us in court against one another, it just doesn't look good. And so when the church makes the news for all the wrong reasons, it's hard to recover and people never forget it. People will always remember how we how we weren't. So here's a question based on first Corinthians six, one through eight, based on what Paul is saying. Do you believe it's always wrong to go to law against a brother or sister? Would there never be a case in which you could take a brother or sister to court? Or would that always be wrong based on 1 Corinthians 6? Y'all aren't sure, huh? Well, there any of you? Okay. Yeah, that's right. Roger, did you have something? Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? 
Yeah, I think what's been said so far is right. Um, you know, and this isn't necessarily a one-for-one example, but there are numerous times throughout the book of Acts when Paul uses his Roman citizenship and appeals to the local authorities. Now, Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 6, there are some issues among you that you all can solve, and you won't solve them. You're going before unbelievers. You can handle it. But there are times when things are beyond our control and it would be an ungodly thing to try to handle them ourselves, to try to say, well, we're going to keep the courts out of this. And I don't want to get into too many gory details, but you could just imagine some of the things. What if somebody did something to a child that they shouldn't have done? It would be a wrong thing for the church to say, well, we slapped his hand or her hand and it's really no big deal. There are some things that Romans 13 says, according to the laws of the land, the church needs to submit and do the right thing. And it would be an injustice. It would be a sinful thing to keep those types of things out. And there are a host of other things that we might mention. And so there are certain, as Roger mentioned, I believe 1 Corinthians 6. And I bring that up because sometimes this passage is abused. It's used as a sugar stick passage to say, well, I'm a brother. You're a brother. I'm a sister. We, we just can't go to the law at all. I don't think that's what Paul is arguing for. But whatever the situation was at Corinth, it was something that was within their ability to solve and to reconcile and they wouldn't do that but when it gets beyond us right say a brother wouldn't pay his taxes romans 13 says you have to do that the christians couldn't say well don't worry about that you're one of us hey you've been putting your money in the plate there are local authorities and they would need to do the right thing in order to be in step with god because remember god ordains civil government to do certain things and so that 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 needs to be brought up as well first corinthians 6 9 through 11 Paul says, keep the right mindset about the kingdom. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And so Paul said, hey, don't take each other to court because you're not ungodly. Ungodly and unrighteous people aren't going to heaven. Verses nine through eleven. You remember what that was like because that's who you were. And then Paul lists these behaviors. All right. We talked about this before, but specifically verses nine through eleven. Why would Paul lead off this section with saying, do not be deceived about this? Why would he say that about these sins? Do not be deceived. If you do these things, you won't go to heaven. You read the Bible and you say, of course, I couldn't go to heaven doing this stuff if I don't repent. But why would Paul lead off this section with that preface? Do not be deceived. It's probably because God knew that one day people would come around and try to deceive you and say, oh, you can live like God doesn't care about that. No big deal. It's not that big of a sin. God's going to let that pass. Paul's saying, don't let anybody ever mislead you. Look at this list. And this list isn't exhaustive. There are other sin lists like this in the New Testament where God is saying, do not let anybody lie to you. If you take up this lifestyle, if you decide to live this way, a drunkard, a reviler, a homosexual person, a thief, an extortioner, God's not going to overlook that. You won't go to heaven that way. Do not be deceived. You can't live any way you want and still have God's blessing. Yeah. Yeah, Russell's got something. I'm going to come back to what Kevin just said. Go ahead, Russell. Yeah, that's right. And maybe that's what they were doing. But back to what Kevin said. I know that that's right, that there were people doing this because look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Now, which one of those sins they were practicing in Corinth? We don't know, but there were some of them. And there's a lot that can be said about what Paul says here and what it teaches us about him and them. Number one, people can change. 
And such were some of you. They were like that. But that's not how they are now. Don't ever give up on anybody. Don't ever think, well, that's just how they are. Such were some of you. Can you imagine walking into this congregation and people that have formerly stolen from one another? People that have formerly practiced homosexuality. Elders in the church now. Members of the kingdom of God. Paul says, you used to be like that, but not now. Secondly, though, it says to us, what kind of people Paul preached to? Acts 18 says many of the Corinthians hearing and believing Paul were baptized. Who did Paul preach to? Who was he encountering when you read through the book of Acts? People like this. Here's the question for us. Are we encountering people like this? And are we preaching to them not merely with the words of condemnation, but also with hope? That's what Paul did. He was preaching to these people and saying, hey, there's a better way. You can't live that way with God's approval, but you can come on over. And guess what? He was successful because there's a first Corinthians in the Bible. He wrote to these people who had become Christians. And so we should never lose hope in our society and what can happen if people change. And here's the last thing to note on this. Look at all of these sins in verses nine and ten. You can answer for yourself and I'll answer for myself. But are we sometimes guilty of emphasizing some of these more than others? You got a favorite in this list that you really like to harp on that you think, oh, that's a big one. What is big sin and little sin? What is that? It's a human construct to make us feel better about ourselves. That's what it is. There are some sins that just give us the ill factor. We just don't like it. We couldn't see ourselves practicing that one. So we put an exclamation mark in all caps on that one. But Paul says, look at the list again. You greedy. No heaven for you. Right. You're a thief. You're a drunkard, a reviler, a swindler, a person that practices idolatry. By the way, covetousness is idolatry. Colossians three, five. Are there sins in this list that we emphasize more than others to the extent that we do that? We're biblically unsound because Paul lists the host of these. And he says, look, people that do these things won't inherit the kingdom of God. There's no big sin and no little sin. But sometimes we're guilty of doing that in our society. We're guilty of doing that to other individuals. And Paul lists all of them. And he says, you can't go to heaven with any of these. Russell. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably it. Yeah. There. Yeah, that's right. Romans six. Right. Paul says grace doesn't if grace encourages you to sin more, you don't understand grace. Grace always makes us see ourselves as wretched as we are without Christ and say, I can't keep doing this. Yeah, we can't continue in sin that grace may abound because we won't go to heaven and we really abuse and misuse the grace of God. This is a good place for us to stop at the end of this section. We'll finish chapter six next week and launch into chapter seven, which is going to be fun in and of itself. But thanks for a good class. Thanks for your comments. And if there are any questions about anything, feel free to discuss them with me.